Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Serious. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, and welcome to High Theory. Today, we are talking with Sheila Liming about party. Before we begin, could we have you introduce yourself to our listeners? Of course. My name is Sheila Liming. I'm associate professor in the English program at Champlain College, which is located in Burlington, Vermont. And I'm also the author of a new book called Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, which was published by Melville House Press um, a few months back. Let me ask you my very first question, which is, what the heck is a party? So I write about parties in the book. They were actually my first sort of case study or my first sort of example that I use in discussing the concept of hanging out in the book. I started with parties because I think they are in some ways a sort of preeminent example of hanging out, or they're one of the primary formats that we think of when we think of that idea of what it means to just sort of exist and gather and congregate socially. So I started with the idea of parties, which I recognize are actually a rather fraught concept. Um, Some people love parties, they live for them. Some people really, really fear and dread them. And I was interested in that um, array of opinions and feelings regarding parties. I would define a party in the modern or contemporary sets as a gathering of individuals that is usually um, organized around the idea of celebration. So it can be the observation of like a particular event or um, an accomplishment or an annual, you know, sort of thing like a birthday or a holiday or something like that. Um, But the idea is, you know, to get people into a room together and have them observe in celebratory style some sort of occasion. And then in the book, I kind of talk about the history of that word a little bit more and how it didn't always mean that. And that is actually a relatively recent meaning that it's only taken on, you know, in its own history for the past, oh, 200 years. So is the meaning of party as faction older? Yes. In fact, so if we look at the Latin root of the word, which is partidum, partidum originally meant to divide something. Um, So if you think of the word like apart or the verb two parts, that's basically where it's coming from. Um, And partidum became partition. And party grew out of that word. So originally, the concept of a party was a faction of people that was divided from another faction of people, usually by having something in common, like a political opinion or a way of viewing the world. But the whole point was to kind of um, create divisions and to show where one group of people was and then where another one existed, maybe on the other side of a particular divide or or line. I'm really kind of interested in your uh, thoughts on the relationship between a party and time. Like, I mean, again, like if we are coming into this with preconceptions that part, a party is an unstructured time, that's not quite it. But mm-hmm, Exactly. Yeah. In, in the book, you know, the subtitle of the book is The Radical Power of Killing Time. I spend a lot of it thinking about unstructured or lightly structured leisure time, as I call it. And I define hanging out under those terms. But you're right that a party is a more sort of formalized ge- gesture. And so where time is concerned... It's usually something that is marked by these temporal containers. A party starts at a certain time and it ends at a certain time um, or else it ends when everybody goes home. 
And I think it it is seen as being this sort of like pause in um, general life or in mundane activities. And the pause, you know, lasts for a couple of hours and it gathers people together within those couple of hours and then it releases them again. So it is temporarily specific. We think of parties as something that's supposed to happen at a certain time. They're supposed to be kind of like a fleeting occurrence, an annual occurrence or else a single occurrence that is only going to happen one time. And then they end and, and they dissipate right. and things move on. Okay. So, uh, you know, using that as the basis, which is uh, a party is one particular kind of killing time, which is, again, has a very specific relationship with labor and leisure, I guess. Let me ask you my second question. How do we use a party? Um, by which, of course, I mean how you use a party. Um, that's a really great question. So I'm glad you asked it. I like thinking of the idea of a party as a tool. And I think that, you know, historically, at least in modern history, for the last couple hundred years or so, since this modern use of the term became associated with celebrations, they have been used as tools. So if we think of the way that parties are sometimes staged as performances that are supposed to draw attention to something specific, whether it's a cause or an occasion or, a, you know, a day on the calendar or whatever it is, that's, of course, one way in which they're used. But I think they're also used as a social tool to sort of leverage network connections, um, to get people together in a room, to see if you can like grow network connections. That's the way they're often used in like the business sense, you know, um, to kind of like network and, and have people meet each other. Um, and then I think they're also used sometimes as a, a way to sort of like step away from the routine that we find ourselves enmeshed in more often and live our lives a little bit differently through that feeling of ritualistic performance. Um, so parties become associated, I think, with optimism, mm -hmm. sometimes with hope, and also with the idea of cyclicality, that when you do it, you're sort of like planning ahead and creating momentum for the future. Yeah, mentioning cyclicality suddenly reminded me of all the horrible parties in the TV show, The Office. Yes, exactly. And I, I'm fairly obsessed with the notion of like work mm -hmm. and office parties. <laughs> I'm really interested in that idea because I think they are one of those instances that has kind of sullied the name of parties in general, but also one of the things that makes people dread them is their experiences that they have with what we might right. call the mandatory fun side of parties. Um, so that includes, you know, like um, mandatory trainings that are viewed as sort of like celebratory, but we're going to hang out at work and stuff, or even like um, birthday celebrations. I think of that in the show, The Office, the way they're they're constantly yeah. doing the birthday celebrations, or even like holiday parties where The Office tries to act like it is something other than what it is, which is an association of people who are paid and marked by their labor for a specific company rather than, um, you know, a group of people who would choose to be in the same room with each other. Without giving away too much of the book, but can I ask you your some examples of parties in fiction that you use or that you are that you like? Yeah. So I start with maybe somewhat ironic one, um, which is an example of a pivotal scene that comes from Carson McCullers' novel *The Heart Is a Lonely Hunter*, and it involves um, a adolescent character, the character Mick in that novel, who plans a party to sort of mark her entry into what she views as young adulthood. She's leaving childhood behind. She wants to have this very adult style party and she's kind of emulating her older siblings in this. And she wants it to be really fancy and very dressed up and very formal. And so she has this party and she invites not the people who are her friends, but she invites people from her school who she views as being people that she wants to emulate. So people who are more refined than her or fancier or have more money. And she calls them up and she invites them to this party, which she calls a prom party, meaning that it's supposed to be the sort of party where people get together in fancy dresses and they promenade along the streets. 
And the party takes place during the Depression. And of course, you know, crucially, it's being um, hosted by a 12 year old who's on the cusp of turning 13. And it devolves into mayhem. And Mick, the, you know, the main character in this section of the book is really upset by the outcome of the party because people don't follow the rules right. that she has set for it. It's supposed to be formal. It's supposed to be nice. It's supposed to be fancy. And instead, it becomes childish chaos. Um, a bunch of people show up at the party who weren't invited. They start, you know, messing around. The cake ends up on the floor and everybody ends up playing in a, in a ditch full of mud. And she's upset about it because it's not what she wanted it to be. And yet, as she learns kind of towards the end of it, it's also like a more authentic vision of what she had planned. It's it's everybody has fun. And, you know, the, the lesson that almost comes out of this is like, if you loosen up the rules and the expectations for what you wanted a party to be, you might right. just have a good yeah. time. You know, I, I really love the final sentence of your first chapter, which is in parties where you say what gets created is momentum or rhythmic energy pushing us toward whatever comes next. And I mean, we began with the idea of the party as a pause, but it turns out the party is more of like a an acceleration in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Something that kind of spurs everyone forward there. Um, I end the chapter, um, you know, by talking about another sort of ironic example of parties. Um, when I'm talking about the poem, The Electric Slide Boogie, and I'm talking about how that is actually a party that takes place. Um, this is a poem by Audre Lorde, and it's a party that takes place in the midst of the narrator um, battling for her life. I mean, she's she's effectively dying from cancer, as Audre Lorde was at that point when she wrote the poem. And she's listening to this party that's happening on the other side of the wall to New Year's Eve party while she's lying in bed. And it's a it's a sort of painful poem, but it's a very beautiful one, too. And and her commentary is that, you know, she's she's sort of comforted by the idea that life's going to keep going on from this point in time. And, and the party is a reminder of that. The sounds of the party that reach her through the wall remind her that things will keep. Yeah. Going. How will a party or how will parties save the world? <laughs> oh, I love that question. I love I love the grand stakes yeah, of it. Nice <laughs> of stakes. In this podcast. Yeah, I'm 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 fine with that. I think our questions should have high stakes behind them. I think that, you know, a, a party can be seen as a radical act in that um, it does gather people together. It continues to insist on gathering people together, I think, in person, in close physical proximity, which is itself becoming a somewhat radical idea um, because we are now so capable of living so much of our lives without physical proximity that that idea itself seems, you know, sort of um, strange and radical now to us. Um, but I also think, you know, that that parties are a way that you can get people together to scheme. And, you know, in the business world, we might call this basically networking. But in another sense, what's happening there is a kind of like intellectual or thoughtful or even emotional um, collaboration where people get together in a room and whether, you know, it's because they want to toast somebody's birthday and they're all putting their emotional energy into doing that together or if it's because they want to make new friends and connections and, you know, become more attached to their community, whatever that community happens to be. Um, I think a lot about the role that parties have played historically in um, radical organizing and in unionization drives, yes. that parties themselves were a way to gather people together to also tell them like, OK, you know, become part of this movement. Think about the stakes of the politics here. You know, join together and find commonality in your working situations. Those were really pivotal devices. Yeah. So I think that, in a sense, does speak to me of the potential of a party to save the world. Because um, if you can get people together in a room and use that as the basis for political change, yeah. 
or political revolution, then that itself is huge. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this also reminds me of like the following chapter in your book is called Hanging Out with Strangers, but we also party with strangers. I mean, you know, we don't only party with um, people we know. And in terms of like organizing, and it also doesn't have to be, historically speaking, it, it also wasn't always the case where there was a kind of overt political banner. And I'm thinking of like, uh, yeah. you know, um, McQueen's uh, brilliant TV show, which is Small Acts, where uh, he has this episode called uh, Lover's Rock, which is about house parties in the Windrush generation in the UK. Hmm. Which is, it's not about politics, but again, it's it's mainly about food and music. But again, like this is it's resulting in a political generation. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, it makes me think of, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I talk about when I used to play in a band back when I was in my 20s and living in Pittsburgh. And my band would tour around and, and the bass player in our band was from Florida. And we would sometimes tour down to Florida just because he had contacts down there. And in Florida, there is this immense scene of house parties, um, largely having to do with the suburban character of lots of parts of the state. And there are all these, you know, people in their 20s and their 30s. And sometimes there's kids and there's families who are hanging out at these house parties um, that are taking place in private spaces. So you have to kind of like be in the know to find out about them. But they're all over the place. And it was always easy for us to find gigs through that kind of network of house parties. But I think about that as being a kind of antidote to the suburban isolation um, that you see sometimes in places like that, yeah. too. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So uh, I know, I mean, we talked, we didn't talk directly, but like we talked a little bit about your um, interest in the offices of space. And, uh, you know, for our listeners, uh, Sheila has written for Bloomsbury book in the object lesson series called The Office. How will your future work continue your interest in parties, would you say? I think that I, you know, the work that I've been doing and hanging out grew out of a lot of the thinking that I was doing in the office book. And the office book came out in 2020. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, right at the moment when nobody was going to the office anymore. Yes. And and I was thinking about, of course, you know, the end of the office and the lack of access to shared communal spaces like offices and things like that, but also about the death of parties at the same time. So in the office book, I, I have a small section where I talk about office holiday parties as a kind of ritualistic observance of company politics and corporate politics and also the social relations that, you know, exist within those frameworks. And I think that became the seed of, of thinking about what we're doing when we're hanging out in that kind of context, meaning like um, in a performative context that's also tied to labor, but also supposed to be infused with leisure at the same time, too. So office Christmas parties or office holiday parties became the sort of seed that launched a lot of my thinking about hanging out, um, which started on the topic of parties and then turned into, you know, um, an exploration of other forms of hanging out, too. Um, I feel like I'm not done with that thinking. I feel like I have more to say about it, but I'm not sure exactly what. So um, I'm thinking about where that's going to lead in the future with future writing projects. Oh, that's very exciting. And I hope, uh, you know, we go to exciting parties and you write a book. <laughs> I hope so, too. I, I hope there's plenty more parties in my future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sheila, thank you so much for coming right here and talking about parties. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast sticks. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharnik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. 